Well, most of the time when you have a planned event, you save the best to last, right? The climax. Well, we started out with the climax talking about heaven for seven weeks. <clears throat> and I thought about, you know, why don't we start the other way? But <clears throat> for some reason I didn't. No rhyme or reason to it. But today we're going to be talking about we're saved from what? Saved from what? And to begin this section, <clears throat> I think it's best to begin with this quote I just found, I think yesterday, from Spurgeon. He said, Never let us speak of the doom of the wicked harshly, flippantly, or without holy grief. The loss of heaven and the endurance of hell must always be themes for tears. I thought that was pretty well stated. Now, hell is a word that is a constant in the vocabulary of many, many, many people. It's used in every possible manner and context. It's used for comparison purposes. It's used to make a strong statement. It's used as a filler in a statement and a plethora of other ways. It's used so much that the true meaning and the impact is severely compromised. We have heard it used inappropriately so many times that often we don't even hear it that it was in the sentence. It's used in such a manner that it can mean virtually anything, from good to bad. For example, I have heard these statements, and you have too. He just played a hell of a game. What's that mean? <laughs> I just, that just scared the hell out of me. Yeah, we've all heard those things all the time. And we could go on and on. And put your antenna up the next couple weeks and see how many times it's used. It's used on the radio by disc jockeys. It's used by commentators on, on news and sporting events. It's used by, every, by people everywhere. And if you were to define hell based on how it is used in today's vernacular, good luck. You wouldn't be able to. <clears throat> this trivialization waters down what it really is and how important it is to know about and to avoid. The way most people deal with anything that is uncomfortable... And the biblical teaching on hell is just that, is to minimize its reality. It's uncomfortable to think about, but you know, so is the flu. But people still go to get flu shots. Sadly, far too view the realities of eternity in hell enough to look into it even as much as they do a flu shot. In the, I put a quote in your notes. In Systematic Theology, it said this. The doctrine of eternal conscious, 
punishment tends to be one of the first doctrines given up by people who are moving away from a commitment to the Bible as absolutely truthful. Jonathan Edwards, you've probably heard of him. I was tempted to read and bring some quotes from his sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Read that sometime. That's a that's quite a that's quite a sermon. And believe it or not, when I was going to college at Boise State my freshman year, they had us read that. I don't think they'd probably have you do that today, but they did then. I did in college. You did in college. They criticized it. Oh, okay. One of your pastors preached it. It's it's a it's quite a message. But Jonathan Edwards said this, The doctrine is indeed awful and dreadful. It is dreadful to think of it, but yet tis what God, the eternal God, who made us and who has us soul and body in his hands, has abundantly declared to us. Spurgeon, another comment that he had on hell, he said this, Until we know the power of divine grace... We read in the Bible concerning eternal punishment and we think it is too heavy and too hard and we are apt to kick against it. And we find out some heretic or other who teaches another doctrine. MacArthur said this, he said, The truth of eternal punishment to come on those who do not believe the gospel savingly is a painful message to preach. It is a painful message to hear. It is a painful message to process. It is a painful truth to apply, but it is biblical. Back to Jonathan Edwards, who, by the way, died in 1758, so just a couple years ago. He said, almost every natural, and I love this quote. This is a great one. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. That statement is as true today as it was when Edwards made it almost 300 years ago. We like to think that mankind has changed, that we live in such an advanced society as those hundreds or thousands of years ago, but really, the more you look at it, we haven't changed at all. One factor contributing to the difficulty of studying hell is that we all know someone, a family member or a friend, who we love and admire. And to think that that person as receiving God's wrath makes hell very uncomfortable. Maybe that's part of the problem. When the subject of hell comes up, we often think of others and not of ourselves. What about me? C.S. Lewis spoke to this saying, quote, In all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, nor our friends, but of ourselves. We prefer to comfortably distance ourselves from the reality of hell. It's much easier to believe anything besides an absolute eternal hell. It is less stressful 
Speaking on hell doesn't draw a crowd. Okay? But speaking on titles like be all you can be, it does. In reality, it should be one of the first things taught when the gospel is presented. This is what the Christian, the believer, is saved from. It is the reason for the gospel. Spurgeon said, shun all views of shun all views of future punishment that would make it appear less terrible. That's what people do. It is interesting that he made that statement again in the mid-1800s. Even then, there were many who wanted to minimize hell just as they are doing today. Another quote from Lewis, he said, In the long run, the question to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all cost, give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's exactly what he does. We live in a world where all kinds of sins, and more and more it seems every day, each passing year, are socially acceptable. And there are very few sins that even raise an eyebrow. Well, you could probably name five or ten. Of course, the unregenerate enjoy their sin. So apart from the Spirit of God convicting them of sin, they are happy to justify what they need to justify and push the list of sin even further and further away to expand the list of allowable behavior even further out. Our society teaches little, if any, consequences of sin, or should I say, mistakes because that seems to be the buzzword we get a warped sense of good and evil and a distorted understanding of justice and I couldn't I couldn't finish that sentence without writing this I guess it depends on what is is remember that great line to justify his sin which is what it was no one wants to promote consequences for sin and this is bled into beliefs about the judgments of God we don't want to have the consequences of sin in this life and that has bled into our our judgments of God people get duped into thinking that there is little or no consequence for sin Unlike Romans 2.5 that speaks of storing up the wrath of God when he comes in righteous judgment where it says this. But because, you're stu- because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. MacArthur quotes a survey and I'm sure this survey is old now and I'm sure that it is even... It's even trending in a worse direction. 
that 75% of Americans believe in hell. 75%. But only 4% of that 75% think there's any chance they would ever go there. And there have been a lot of variants on how many deal with an eternal hell to appease their uneasiness. Whole bunch of ideas. Some say, well, it's not physical. Hell is not a physical place. It's a state of mind. A sour state of mind. And the only support they have is, well, that's what I want to think. Some believe, and we talked about this last week a little bit, that hell is temporary. That's kind of a purgatory type prison where people go for a finite time before being allowed into heaven. This ties into a second chance or multiple chances to go to heaven. C.S. Lewis had a pretty good quote on this. He said, I believe that if a million chances were likely to do good, they would be given. Finally, our finality must come sometime, and it does not require a very robust faith to believe that omniscience, or God, knows when. Hebrews 9.27 states this, And it is appointed for man to die once, and after this, the judgment comes judgment. What is the value of becoming a believer in this life if additional chances are allowed later on down the road, the next life, or the next life, or whatever? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, if that's the case, and it is because it's in, it's in the word of God, God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but all to come to repentance. God would not allow people to go hell to hell if he knows they're going to change their mind if he waits a little longer. We could get into a real long discussion on that and the election and all that kind of stuff, but maybe sometime, but we'd be here for a couple, four hours if we yeah. did that. Now, but God didn't cut somebody off knowing that they would have become a believer later on. And then you have that whole temporary thing where you have the severity of the crimes dictates the length of punishment. Again, that ties into the whole purgatory thing. Some people just think, oh, but we're just going to be annihilated. Just go out of existence like stepping on a bug. The bigger piece is universalism. Where they say, in the end, God's going to end up saving anyone. And that's what people want to believe. I mean, that's nice and fluffy. And A Fordham University theological professor, by the way, don't take your theology at Fordham. All right? He said this, it's there, hell is, but possibly that no one will go there. Rob Bell, who is a 
flaming heretic. And that's probably a nice way to say it. He wrote a book called Love Wins. And he proposes that the Christian doctrine of hell is one of the main reasons why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. He insinuates that it would be a, quote, a gross atrocity if the doom of the unsaved are everlasting in the same sense that heaven's blessings for the redeemed are everlasting. His idea of sin seems to be that evil consists of the hurt it causes to the sinner rather than the offense it caused to a holy God. And the more you listen to this guy talk, I mean, it's just, he's putting his reasoning in saying, God needs to reason the same way I reason. He had a church at one time that had over 20,000 people in it called Mars Hill. But um, yeah, it's garbage. And he's still spewing his stuff out there. Then there is people that deny hell. Well, if hell doesn't exist, then evil, I mean, take about, you know, talk about the, the evil, the, the most evil people in society that have ever been, Hitler, Stalin, murderers, rapists, pedophiles, they're never punished. That would mean there is no consequences to any earthly activity. If hell doesn't exist, we could come to these conclusions. If hell does not exist, God is not worthy of worship. Because he allows evil to go unpunished. God is not just and there is no justice. Jesus was not God. He was wrong. So why believe what he had to say about anything? And if there's no hell, what did Jesus come and die for? For nothing. And the Bible is false and Christianity is ultimately irrelevant. So what does the Bible teach about hell? We need to teach what the Bible teaches about hell. It teaches that because of sin, every person who rejects Jesus Christ will justly and eternally be punished by God forever in a place called hell. Salvation involves being saved from something. Something drastic. Not something like loneliness or anxiety or disappointment or sickness. The message of the gospel is that salvation is a rescue from a real place called hell, which is an eternal punishment of a holy and a loving God. Just this last week, after the notes were pretty much done, I saw a post that to quoted John MacArthur, where they got it from, I don't know, on hell. on on what hell will not be like. I didn't know exactly where to put it, so I put it right here. He said this, Hell will not be a place, as some jokingly envision, where the ungodly will continue to do their thing, and while the godly will do theirs in heaven. Hell will have no friendships, no fellowship, no camaraderie, no comfort. It will not even have the debauched pleasures in which the ungodly love to revel on earth. There will be no pleasure in hell of any kind or degree, only torment day and night forever and ever. 
Now, I have kind of a warped sense of humor, as my wife will attest. And I like pretty much a lot of the far side cartoons, except the ones where he does on Hill. And they're just sick, bad sick. You know, there's all kinds of, of them on Hill. And, they, and people will take these types of things and they will think that that's what hell is like. I remember one was a bowler and every time he got a 7-10 split. Right? That's not hell. Okay? They always show Satan in charge of hell. Satan's not in charge of hell. Satan's being punished in hell. And it just goes on and on and on. Every depiction that someone tries to make of hell is that that's like MacArthur's talking to that people think they're going to have friendships. How many of you heard somebody said, well, I'm going to join all my friends down there? Yeah. You know? It just... Uh, to continue to party. Yeah, continue to party. You know, I mean, that's what they duped their mind into thinking. Just this week I was talking to a guy and he asked me how I was doing and I said something, and he said, "Well, it, you know, uh, uh, about this life." And I and and he said, "Well, it beats the alternative, being dead." I said, "Well, I just taught a class on heaven for seven weeks, and I don't really think it does, unless you're not going to heaven." He got quiet, <laughs> you know. But we need to understand and be able to show people that hell does not have friendships, no fellowship, no camaraderie, no comfort, not even the debauched pleasures in which the ungodly love to revel on earth. What about hell? Many people, many people talk about how Jesus is all about love. And he is. Love is one of the great messages that Jesus taught. But Jesus did not avoid, he did not sugarcoat eternal separation and damnation. He knew about hell. He knows about hell. He talked about it. And he warned about it. And he spoke about hell more than everyone else in the Bible combined. And he defined hell as a conscious eternal punishment. But boy, if you go and say, what did Jesus talk about? Oh, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, he, yeah, he, he, he said all those things. But we've got to look at what everything he taught. Last week we talked a little bit about Luke 16, 19 to 31, where Jesus tells the story about a man who went to hell. Here Jesus tells us some specifics about hell, a few little things. But he went too far as say in Matthew to say in Matthew five, twenty nine to thirty. It says now if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than, from your, than for your whole body to go into hell. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said this, And do not fear those who kill the body, 
Do not fear those who kill the body. We could probably read that about six times. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He knows, Jesus knows of the severity of hell. And looking at various passages, Jesus describes hell as a place of, and I thought about looking all of these up, but we, we would grossly run out of time, but we'll talk about a couple of them. A hell is a place where he says in Luke 16, some will go after death. And it will be a place of torment. Now, it will not be a place of torture. There's a difference between torment and torture. One site tried to define torment and it said this. Consider finally then the soul in the abyss facing eternal separation and eternal aloneness, isolated and embittered, aware of the forcibly separate of, of aware but of but forcibly separated from God against whom his rebellion rages what a human being feels on a limited and temporal basis such a soul feels magnified in infinity of times and he is not contemplating separation from a limited and flawed human being but from the source of life all goodness and all joy. So the separation is from the source of life, all goodness and all joy. Can we even find words to describe what infinite emptiness feels like? But torture, look up torture, torture is the deliberate infliction of severe physical or mental pain or suffering for a purpose, such as to extract information or to coerce a confession. Or just to inflict punishment. Just, I love to see you suffer. Hell is torment. Absolutely. But I don't think you could say it is torturous. Hell is a place of unquenchable fire. We see that in Matthew 5, Matthew 13, and Mark 9. Mark 9 says, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished, for everyone will be salted with fire. This passage is saying that hell is perpetual or eternal or everlasting. And then we see that it will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8 but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see that, that same phrase also given in Matthew 13 and Matthew 25, 13, 50 and 25, 30. It's a place of eternal punishment. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 46 says this, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now the word eternal in that verse is from, in that verse, both in both cases, is from the same Greek word. And it's the word that's used to describe eternal or everlasting. 
That same word is used for eternity in heaven. So if hell is not everlasting, neither is heaven. And the same word is also used to describe God. So if there is not an everlasting hell, there is not an everlasting heaven, and then there is not an everlasting God. So you start tearing away one thing, and the whole thing just collapses. Augustine said 1,500 years ago, he said, quote, To say that life eternal shall be endless, but that punishment eternal shall come to an end, is the height of absurdity. Of course, that's what we want, but it's violation of what the Bible says. More things about hell. It says there's spiritual and bodily destruction in Matthew chapter 10. It's described as having fiery furnaces, fiery furnaces in Matthew 13, 42 and 50, and Luke 26, 24, and in Jude 7. It's a place of darkness. Probably haven't thought of that. Hell is dark. We see this in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12 and again in June, Jude 7. It's a place of thirst and agony we see in Luke 16. And also in Luke 16, it's a place where there is no escape forever. It's a place of abandonment. You know, it's, it's hard to understand totally the mental agony of being completely abandoned for all eternity. Remember the chilling cry. And this, this is the chilling cry that Jesus made as he suffered God's wrath on the cross. What did he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's chilling. And when you're in hell, you're forever forsaken by God. While hell is full of God's judgment, God will never be there to comfort or to bring relief. It's both the punishment of God and the absence of comfort. It's a place of imprisonment and confinement we see in Matthew 22. Verse 13 of Matthew 22, it says, Then the king said to the servants, Tie his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. And in Jude, verse 13, the last half of it says, talking about the ungodly, for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. So there's this imprisonment, there's this confinement. Now, first century prisons were a little bit different than current prisons. Okay? Even, you know, if you followed the, what, Brittany Griner story when she was imprisoned in Russia, Russian prisons are not even, I mean, they're, they're not fun. All right? But that is a palace compared to what they were in the first century. The first century prison the conditions were horrid and extremely, extremely unhealthy. Generally, they were, they were devoid of light. 
The food barely sustained life. It was about half of what was given to a slave. There was no comfort for sleeping. You got to sleep on the floor on a pallet with little or no bedclothes, only the outer cloak that you wore every day you were there. You were fettered by chains made of rough iron, rusted from the perspiration on your one or both of your legs. Put some iron around you and have it start rusting because if you perspiration of, of you. And they weighed about 15 pounds carrying around that. There was uncleanness, uncleanness, horrible stenches, no baths, no haircuts. Can you imagine the lice? It'd just be insane. The clothes deteriorated because you never got new chains. There's sickness all around. And when Jesus described hell, he used vivid, terrifying, graphic terms. He presented hell as a horrific place full of intolerable suffering. In Luke 22, we read of Jesus in the garden just before his arrest. And this is another one of those chilling passages, to me anyway. Now when he arrived, verse 40, Now when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not come into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now so far you're thinking, okay, that's fine. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. So he needed strength. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. We have no idea the stress that Jesus suffered. I've never had stress like that. Why did he suffer that? While Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, this was the night he was betrayed and arrested, he was anticipating the coming penalty for our sin that he would bear. He had bloody drops of sweat falling from his body. He was facing the reality of absorbing his, uh, his father's eternal wrath. He knew that his father would for a moment abandon him. And as we read through this event, what happened to Jesus on the cross and in the garden, we get a sense of what he faced and did for us. We just get a little glimpse of it. He did that for us. And remember, Jesus being God knew what he was speaking about. As our substitute for sin, he knew the torments of hell and knew he was going to experience the full outpouring of divine wrath of God for our sin. That should make us just absolutely fall on our knees and say thank you. Nothing short of incredible. Jesus knew of the punishment of God and what it entailed. Other places in the Bible that speak of hell that are in not 
outside of the Gospels more, more frequently here. It's a place of shame and everlasting contempt in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It's a place of endless destruction and punishment in 2 Thessalonians 5, or 1, 5 to 10. It's a place where sinners suffer everlasting torment with no rest day or night. In Revelation 14, 9 to 11. It's called a bottomless pit in Revelation 20. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it's separation from God. And then there's this quote in Ecclesiastes 9. And by the way, I believe this fall, on the Wednesday study, Scott's going to go through Ecclesiastes. Is that right? So be there when he covers chapter 9. Be there for all of it, but when he covers chapter 9. It says, verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to where which you are going. John Calvin wrote on the biblical description of hell, saying, By such expressions the Holy Spirit certainly intended to confound all our senses with dread. Now hell is viewed best and most clearly by the Greek word Gehenna. Probably heard of it. Now, Gehenna is a word that comes from the Valley of Hinnom, which is a valley just southeast of Jerusalem. And in ancient times, this was where the city dump was. And all the garbage and all the refuge and all everything flowed to this valley, Gehenna. And in that dump, there existed a never extinguished fire. It was constantly burning. Yeah, we think we have environmental issues then. Yeah, they had some big ones then. The word Gehenna became the metaphor for the lake of fire or for hell. That's how, you know, what's the worst place that you can think of being stuck? Go there. Hell is eternal conscious punishment, and we cannot derive any other conclusion from Scripture. Those who say anything else that is temporary or is not that bad or whatever are calling Jesus either mistaken or they're calling him a liar. And if they believe he was God, lying or intentionally misleading is the only option. And of course, if he was lying, he's not God and he can't be trusted. Do you see what a corner people get into when they use and insert their own agenda into the Bible? <coughs> Excuse me. You end up in a real mess. <coughs> so who's going there? <coughs> Satan and the demons will be sent to the lake of fire forever because they rebelled against God. Guess what? Everyone's rebelled against God. Jesus said in John 8, Satan is your father. All those who rejected the pardon offered by God are included in that group. Go to Romans 2, 5 to 9. It says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Storing up wrath. We're saving it up. Not something we really want to save, is it? Verse 8. I'm going to skip verse 6 and 7. Verse 8. But to those who are self-serving and do not bathe the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of mankind who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Everyone who has ever existed in all time is included in that sentence. Jude 15 tells us that this punishment is is to, quote, execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and the ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Revelation 20, verse 10. And it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You get this? Satan, the devil, will be tormented. He is not the king of hell. He's not making sure everybody suffers. He is being tormented himself. It will be a horrific torment. And then in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, we read, Then he will also say to those on his left, he being God, Depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So how can a temporal sin result in eternal punishment? To some that might seem excessive. But the amount of sins or the severity of the sins is irrelevant. The punishment of hell is not for remedial purposes. It is not to transform those that are there into people who will do good. Those who go to hell will never repent. Every description of hell indicates that they will remain God-haters forever. One reason that hell will continue forever is that everyone there will continue to hate God, to gnash their teeth at Him. Remember, man sins against the Almighty Creator, God. I believe it was MacArthur who stated this. I'm not sure. It says, The doors of hell are locked from the inside. That is, if you opened the door to let them out, they would choose, they would not choose to come out because they do not want to be with God. They want to continue to rebel against God. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus that we got we talked about a few times and it's came up come up today a little bit. Did the rich man repent in hell? No. No. He said, Hey, go talk to my brother. Let you know. Send somebody to talk to my brother. He didn't repent. There was no indication that God's grace and the light of his truth extended into hell. Or Hades, which is where he was. No one, God in this case, can force himself to be loved by another. 
regardless of how much they love the other party. Can I force you to love me? Can I force you to? No. A loving God must eventually let people go their own way, and for some, or for many, it's away from him because they do not love him. All people are made in God's, God's image and thus have intrinsic value. But their ultimate choice to go on gnashing their teeth at God is respected. God allows them to remain sinners. J.I. Packer wrote this. He says, Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All who all receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. Those who are there will remain forever rebellious. God-haters, blasphemers of the Holy Spirit, rejecters of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so hell is a, a, a quarantine state of sin, not a elimination of sin. Those in hell will continue to hate, curse, and blaspheme. MacArthur said this, people don't go to hell and then never sin forever and just get punished forever. They go to hell and keep on sinning forever so the punishment can never catch up with the wretchedness. This is not warm, fuzzy stuff. To understand why there's a hell is to understand the nature of God. God's honor and God's glory is manifest in the punishment of the wicked. Because he is holy, because he is absolutely righteous and just, he must punish sin. It's because of what men have done to God that they will experience the everlasting punishment of hell. Man, however, he may try, does not have the right, and we don't have the right, to make hell into what we want it to be or thinks what God should make it. We have so many people trying to do that today. And heaven as well, by the way. It is made by God for his purpose where he punishes those who refuse to give him honor and glory and reject his proven his provision for forgiveness. Now, one other thing we need to discuss a little bit, and I think this is important, is that the justice of God is individualistic. I have seen many descriptions of hell, and probably most of them that you see, where everyone is placed in the exact same environment. But hell is much more individualistic than that. Scripture indicates that not everyone suffers in hell to the same degree. As we covered in the session on heaven, Rewards in heaven are specific to that individual. There is the same eternal life for all in heaven, but there are degrees of reward in heaven. Similarly, the Bible teaches there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 42 to 48. And this contains a parable that Jesus said about being ready for his return. Starting in verse 42, it says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household 
to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will shall receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him who they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. So this parable pictures the believer who is ready to meet the Lord when he returns, and it pictures the unbeliever who is not ready to meet the Lord and has disdain for the Lord. Romans 1 tells us the truth about God that it manifests itself from creation, the light that shines in every heart. Every person is responsible for how they handle the good gifts of God revealed to them. They're responsible for their opportunity to know the truth. And what a person does with the opportunity to know the truth determines their future. Those who waste or reject greater exposure to the light of divine revelation and reject the gospel when they've heard it will receive a more severe judgment. Those who are unfaithful to make use of the gospel opportunity or, based on this passage in Luke, those who know his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will were given uh, or punished with the fierce judgment that Jesus described as a severe beating or the New American Standard says will cut him in pieces. That's the equivalent of many lashes. Okay, that's what that is. And after this we are told of a slave who did not know of the master's coming and did what deserved a beating but will receive a light beating or few lashing. This is speaking about eternal punishment. Both are punished, some with many and some with few. What makes the difference is not the volume or nature of sin. That might make you think a little bit. What makes the difference was the response to what the person did with the light of the divine truth they were given. More of the truth of the gospel that is rejected, the severer the punishment will be. That's a sobering thought. That the level of the gospel truth that was rejected. Hebrews 10, 29 and 30 says this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know whom him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
So the person who knows about and rejects Jesus' sacrifice, who profanes the work of the Holy Spirit by their actions and rejection, who insults the Spirit of grace, which is the Spirit who was the power behind Jesus offering his, himself up. Do you get what it means to reject the gospel when you have a full knowledge of it? Uh, that's pretty serious stuff. Matthew eleven twenty two to 24 say this. This is interesting too. Jesus is saying here in verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And to you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I'll tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now we seem to think that Sodom, well, that that was the epitome of bad. Immorality. And it was. It's more tolerable for Sodom than for Capernaum. Well, what did they do in Capernaum? They rejected Christ after they heard him and heard him and heard him and heard him and heard him. People living in the village of Capernaum at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, they were exposed extensively to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, will be more severely punished in hell than those who lived in the cesspools of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because of the over and over again rejection of the truth that was revealed to them. We can go on to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 17 to 21, speaking of false teachers. It says, These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. This is where Justin Peters gets his title for his uh, his. Um, presentation clouds without water is speaking about right here for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved verse 19 they promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption verse 21 for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness then after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. False teachers are going to get severely punished. They will have severe punishment of hell. They knew of the righteousness through Christ. They pretended to be Christians, but they turned away and led many down the path that they promoted. Hell is nothing to make light of. It's nothing to wish upon anyone else. How many times have you heard somebody, oh, go to hell? Uh uh-uh. uh. Uh uh. There's no more serious subject that anyone will ever, ever deal with. And as we have seen, Jesus and the Bible speak of hell in very specific words. Agony, banishment, brimstone, curse, darkness, deprivation, destruction, distress, fire, teeth grinding, guilt, hopelessness, loneliness, pain, suffering, 
pressure, prison, punishment, ruin, separation, shame, contempt, smoke, sulfur, torment, trouble, and weeping. Quite a list. All lasting forever. For eternity. From there, when, from there forward. And everyone who goes there goes there of their own choice. And the only reason a Christian is not going there is because God, through his spirit, came down and whacked us up the side of the head and showed us the truth. We didn't deserve it. We didn't figure it out. We're not smarter than them. We can thank God 100%. I know there's that term you know, in, in athletics. You've got to give 110%. Well, theoretically, you cannot do that. 100% is the max, right? At least that's, that's the math, right? Okay, good. We have a math professor who agreed with that. <clears throat> this is a sobering message, but something we need to understand. Jesus came to provide for us eternal life and escape the horribleness of hell. If it wasn't so horrible, Jesus wasted his time and energy, didn't he? His sacrifice was needed and it was worth it for him for the joy that was set before him for each believer and think of the joy that's set before us that we've talked about in the prior almost two months. So what are we to do with that message? We know that unregenerate people are traveling down a road that will end with sure internal eternal destruction. We also know they can get off that road and change roads to the path that will provide eternal joy. So I had to ask myself, shouldn't we spend our energies telling those people about where their path is leading and what the inevitable outcome will be and where God's path is leading and what the inevitable outcome will be? And I don't know. I don't, I've never met anybody at the end of their life, boy, I'm sorry I became a Christian. Never heard that. Boy, but I've heard a lot of people say the other thing. I know what I need to spend my time doing to tell others about hell, but also about heaven, about the, the gospel, the reason we have the gospel. That's, I guess that's my question. One of my questions is, as Christians, we share the gospel with people, but there are so many people that are just, it's like they have this steel wall mm -hmm. around them and they don't want to hear anything. Now, they don't. And, and that is the, the spirit regenerates the person. Right. I'm not going to talk anybody to become a Christian. I don't want to talk anybody to become a Christian. Yeah. No, that's the spirit of God's work. Remember John 3.16. Everyone who believes in God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But you go to the end of that, you go to the end of that chapter, John 3.36. That's not usually put underneath football players' eyes. Okay? Mm -hmm. But the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God 
remains on him. That's why we need John 3.16. And then we have 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Where it says, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. If nothing else today, spend some time thanking Jesus, thanking God, thanking the Lord for saving us from this wrath to come. It's a sobering message. But that's why Christ came. What we hear all the time is how could a loving God make help? Yeah. All the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can go to any Q&A session of any apologist anywhere. And I'd say 90% of the time, if not more, that's the question that comes up. Right. How could a loving God send somebody to hell? Well, there's all kinds of questions. There's all kinds of problems with that, that statement. And we could, we've talked about it before, but it's been a long time ago. But those people really don't want to believe the Bible, and that's their reason to ignore it. By saying a loving God, they're saying there is moral values, and there is a God. And we could maybe, maybe we ought to spend a whole week sometime just talking through that answer, because it would take a while. But there is a great answer. There is a great answer to that. And the people that usually ask that question are agnostic or atheistic. And then you ask them, how in the world can you even ask that question? So what question are you asking? Because they have, the only reason they present that question is to defend their non-belief. I watched a, I watched a thing this week of a guy, of a lady talking uh, on a, a Q&A and questioning about questioning the Bible and uh, Frank Turek was the guy doing the Q&A and he said well let me ask you a question if if you believe the Bible didn't if, if you believe the Bible didn't contradict itself would you believe it she would not answer that question because she didn't want to believe it and the question they don't want to believe it is why we all have the question is because we are prideful, we think we want to do it ourselves, and that's antithetical to what the whole gospel truth is about. We cannot, all our unrighteousness is as filthy rags, and we need the saving grace of Christ and the power of God in us, because we can't do it. Let's bow for prayer.